Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. No one knows more about the complex politics of the Middle East and the peace process than former Ambassador Dennis Ross, who served administrations of both parties and helped mediate historic peace agreements in the 1990s between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I sat down with him recently at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics to talk about his career, the region, and where we go now. And that conversation took place before the indictment last week of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Dennis Ross, it's great to see you again. I uh, remember very well uh, time back in the White House when you were um, trying to advance a goal that has occupied much of your life, which is peace in the uh, in the Middle East. But uh, before we get to all of that and where we are today, because yeah. there's so much going on, particularly um, in 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 that region, and I know Iran is another yeah. major concern of yours. And I want right. to talk about your your new book, uh, relative to Israeli leadership. Um, but I wanted I wanted to talk about your own story. Yeah. Uh, and um, the um, so so tell me you you grew up in San Francisco. I did. I grew up in, uh, born in San Francisco, grew up in Marin County. Uh, and uh, at that time, interestingly enough, when I was in Marin County as a kid, it was a liberal Republican county, which seems like an oxymoron in and of itself. Yes, I know. I always say, if you want to find a liberal Republican, go down to the Museum of Natural History. Right. Well, uh, that's probably where you can still find them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, And I, I actually, I trace the change in, uh, in Marin County to the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, that's when you, you had a lot of professionals from San Francisco move out to Marin County. Uh, the Vietnam War produced another Mother for Peace. The, the, that actually originated in Marin County. Uh, although I have to say, I actually date the change in Marin County to, uh, we lived down in a place called the, the Belvedere Lagoon. And in front of our house, two, in 1966, two twin Porsches pulled up and two guys got out of them in twin jogging suits and I turned to my brother and I said this looks to me like a profound change is taking place I'm not quite sure why or what or what's driving it but something profound is happening in front of our eyes and so I dated largely from them Uh uh-huh who are those guys I still wonder (laughs) (laughs) you but you uh even before then I want to ask you about your uh, your family and your family's background. Yeah. You know, you're so uh, you're 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 universally known uh, in sort of the active activist Jewish community because right. you've been in the middle of these issues. Um, and your 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 grandfather was a Russian yeah. immigrant. Yeah. Um, so talk On to me a little sides. bit about that. Yeah. yeah. I um, well my mother uh, my mother's parents came from uh, the Ukraine and from Minsk. Her father came from Minsk. Uh, her her mother came from the Ukraine. Her mother was a real revolutionary. In fact, was sort of forced to leave by her grandfather, who was convinced that you know she was going to get them all into trouble. So she came over to the states, and she never quite got over that. Uh, I remember. So she being, moved to Marin County. Of course, it was a natural place <laughs> to go. Uh, you know, she was about she was about four feet nine inches tall. During the Vietnam War, she was out, like, in all the demonstrations. Uh, she had a real—I'll just say that her, her political views were, were quite sharp. She gave me—I remember her, she gave me a magazine called The Minority of One, and I remember doing a report on it in my civics class in high school, 
And after I did it, I was called down to the principal's office to ask where I got this because it was basically a Trotskyite paper. So I, you know, I, I just I, I understood that my grandmother had unusual kinds of political instincts. Uh, but she, like my, my my father, came over uh, in the twenties from uh, from what is now Ukraine, um, and uh, so probably driven out during the yeah. pogroms. Yeah. But not not no real religious identification in your right. family when you were growing up. Oh completely. Well look, my my mother got divorced when I was a year old. She got remarried when I was uh almost four. Um my stepfather was someone who was Catholic, uh, but didn't wasn't observant and didn't really care that my mother had a Jewish identity. I wasn't really educated uh, I went to. I ended up going to Sunday school because they wanted me to play on the basketball team, <laughs> uh, and you know, so I didn't. I really They're developed. Not, not a lot of tall Jews around. You know. Well, and and you know, I had the ability to jump at that time, <laughs> uh, and I could shoot. So, uh, but anyway, so I, I didn't have much of a Jewish identity growing up. Um, I, I sort of acquired it more when I was in college, which mm-hmm. was at a time when you had. I was in. I was an undergraduate from '66 to '70, and then a graduate student from '72 to '77. This was a kind of awakening at time for all sorts of different groups, uh, and uh, you know, authority was being challenged, but people were also asserting their identity, and it became more important to me as a result as well. Uh huh. You you um, you you volunteered in political campaigns. Back I did. Then. Without Bobby, a lot of success, I Bobby would say. Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy. He was my first serious campaign. Uh, I I did a lot of canvassing. I was at the ambassador the night he was killed. Yeah, you were going to UCLA at the time. I was going to UCLA at the time. Yeah, what uh, a stunning night. So, did you know right away that something awful had happened? Uh, we, you know, we were packed. There were two ballrooms on separate floors uh, that we were packed into. Uh, and we were waiting a long time, and you know we were. First of all, we were unbelievably happy because yeah. he had won. Yeah, he uh, looked like he was on his way to the nomination. It, that's what we. It felt like okay, this was you know he was going to become. We felt he'd become president, not just get the nomination, but yes. he'd win. And uh, and then suddenly we got word that there had been a shooting. We were asked to leave the hotel. I was standing actually near an exit, and I walked out. And he was in a gurney. They wheeled him out in front of me. I was right by the ambulance. Oh so it's one of these images that is indelibly fixed in my mind forever. Uh, you know, as you mentioned that, I mean, I was a huge RFK. Right. I, I was a kid in New York. I um, And, you know, it, it was just um, devastating yeah. uh, then. But I've thought about it a lot since. And I think about it in the context, and we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, a little bit later, but uh, about the assassination of Rabin in yep. in in Israel, and you know how a an assassin's bullet can literally change the course of history because Bobby Kennedy very likely would have won I in uh, in sixty eight, and how different the history that followed would be. The war would have ended more uh, more quickly. Right. No Watergate. Uh, maybe a, a uh, you know he was he was a guy who was built, trying to build bridges between a divided in a divided country. Look, you remember the the Kerner Commission report comes out the next year. Imagine if Bobby Kennedy had been president, given his attitude on race relations and yeah. what needed to be done, on what needed to be done with inner cities. You know, it just it was. It, well, we it saw what happened when he went into Indianapolis the night yeah. that Martin Luther King was assassinated, and. And it was the only major city in America where there weren't riots right. uh, that night. So I'm interested. And then you worked for George McGovern in 1972. I had and, a really good track record. So. <laughs> well, what's interesting to me is once you finished your your work, like 10 years after you worked for George McGovern, you were working for Ronald Reagan, or at least working for the administration of Ronald Reagan yeah. Yeah, yeah. in the uh, in the State Department. Yeah. So what happened? I, mean, the, I guess the Defense Department, right? That, that's where I started. Yeah, yeah, the Defense Department. But it's um, so after the McGovern campaign, I basically took off two years from school to work in the McGovern campaign, and after that experience, I said, you know, rather than focusing politically, maybe I'll develop my 
policy expertise. And so that's what I... In Soviet uh, studies. In Soviet studies, but with a heavy Middle Eastern bent. I mean, I was... Malcolm Kerr was the dean of the American Airbus. I was his teaching assistant for three years. Mm-hmm. People may know Malcolm Kerr's name only today because he's Steve Kerr's, he was Steve Kerr's father. Yes. Assassinated in... Uh, yeah, Steve in, was in here and we had... We talked about how that awful... Right. One more... Right. <laughs> one more instance where uh, an act of violence uh, robbed us of a great leader. Absolutely. Um, you know, someone who had an, an unusual feel for, the, for that region, uh, you know, a, a first-rate person, not just a first-rate academic. Uh, and uh, so I, I had a Middle Eastern focus, but I, did, I ended up writing a doctoral dissertation on Soviet decision-making, partly because, as is often the case, I was... Uh, offered uh, a research assistant's job for a project that was being that was a, a DOD funded project on Soviet decision making, and so you followed the money. I followed the money. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> shocking as that may be, I followed the money. But you found yourself uh, in an administration, yeah. and in a period of time that was one of historic uh, transition. I mean. So you're you're a you're you're a kid from uh, Marin County. You um, you worked for Kennedy and McGovern. Um, and how did you how did you reconcile that with going to work for for Ronald Reagan? Well, it's interesting. I was a I was a civil servant uh, at the time because I went into the Defense Department during the Carter administration. I see. Uh, and but I interestingly enough, people don't know this, but. Paul Wolfowitz was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Carter administration from the summer of 77 until the summer of 1980. And he happened to be my boss. So when he goes to, Alexander Haig makes him his first appointment as the head of the policy planning staff in the State Department. Which is kind of their think tank there. Right, that's right. And so, uh, so he asked me to go with him. Now, of course, when they looked at my political background, no way were they going to give me <laughs> political clearance. So I ended up going over on a rotational arrangement, but uh, you know where you can, yeah, yeah, I could be detailed by the Defense Department to the State Department uh, at the request. So I went over as a detailee, uh, and I was there for a year and a half, and then I went back to the to the Pentagon, and I got caught up in the uh, what was really the the Lebanon conflict, and and people don't tend to recall, Donald Rumsfeld was the Middle East envoy in the Reagan administration at that time. I was asked to to provide basically uh, analytical work, support for him. At one point, he wanted me to travel with him to, the, to Lebanon and to Syria, but he was in a terrible confrontation with Weinberger, who was dead set Cap against Weinberger, us. Cap Weinberger, who was the defense secretary. Right, who was dead set against us being there. And they'd had a huge blow-up in front of, of Reagan. Uh, so Rumsfeld wanted, thought we should be in Lebanon, and, yeah. and, and, and Weinberger thought we should not. The key difference was that Rumsfeld, not, and Rumsfeld and Schultz and McFarlane, who was a national security advisor, all felt that there had to be a coercive element to what we were doing vis-a-vis Assad, because Assad was helping to promote terrorism in, in Lebanon against our forces mm-hmm. at the time. The father so, of uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad. And so, you know, um, Weinberger wants no part of it. He wants to get out. And Schultz, Rumsfeld, and McFarland are saying, we, the only way you're going to change the balance of forces there and get Assad to back off and allow us to actually pursue something that had been negotiated by Schultz. Schultz negotiated something called the May 17 Agreement, which would have provided for Israel's withdrawal from uh, from Lebanon but also Syria had to withdraw from Lebanon. And Assad was resisting that and putting pressure on our forces and putting pressure on Amin Jamal, who was uh, the president of, of Lebanon at that time. Uh, and so they wanted to counteract his pressure by putting pressure on him, and Weinberger was against it. And I'm, I'm sort of doing analytical work. I'm doing, I'm saying, all right, here what, here's what your choices are. Here's what the forces are. Here's how you might be able to affect Assad. Here's what you're going to have to do in terms of affecting the the elements within Lebanon. Uh, and and so Rumsfeld says, well, I, I need you to come with me on this trip. And Freddie Clay, who was the undersecretary of defense for policy at that point, tells Weinberger on the way back from the White House, uh, when Weinberger is sort of grousing about who Rumsfeld is and what he wants to do, he says, oh, but we're, we're going to send one of our people 
with him. And he says, oh, who? <laughs> he tells him it's me. He, of course, has no clue who I am. Uh, and, and he says, well, why would we do that? Uh, and so this is at a time when you didn't have cell phones. Right. I have to go out to the airport to see Rumsfeld because I can't get a hold of him to tell him I can't go with him. Uh, and he goes. Oh, know, so you got pulled. I got pulled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Weinberger, though, uh, had uh, a, a big I told you so, right? I mean, after, because that ended in tragedy. We lost 241 Marines in the, in the bombing. Although Weinberger, Weinberger wanted the Marines to hunker down and didn't want them to do anything there. And the irony of having them hunker down is they didn't even do a whole lot on their own self-defense. I see. So... I know. I mean, he wanted to be out of there. In the end, he got his way because we withdrew. You know, the the bombing was in October of '83. Uh, we withdrew in January of '84. And I, I have to say, right around this time, I got an academic offer at Berkeley, and I decided getting caught between the two of them was not one of the most desirable places to be. Colin Powell was Weinberger's military assistant at the time, and he calls me up the day after I'm pulled off the off the trip, and he and he says to me, Dennis. There are two elephants that are fighting, and you're an ant. I suggest you get out of the way. Yeah. I, I took his advice. That's one of the reasons why Colin Powell has had such a long and successful <laughs> career in Washington, <laughs> recognizing those kinds of, uh, those kinds of uh, choices. Um, but then you uh, – so you did this academic work. Yeah. You were focused on uh, the Middle East. You, you, uh, um, you, uh, you, you famously wrote a uh, – a paper about uh, called "Acting with Caution: Middle, Middle East Policy Planning for the Second Reagan Administration," and basically what you said was, um, "Well, here's a quote: strategy of motion while waiting patiently for real movement uh, from the uh, uh, local parties." In other words, yeah. the U.S. had to be active. The one thing that you cannot do, and it relates to today, when the U.S. withdraws, it creates a vacuum. Vacuums are always filled by the worst forces. In the Middle East, for sure, the worst forces. But even internationally, when we're not a player, then others will be. Uh, and the others who come in tend to be those who are hostile to our interests, hostile to our values. Uh, sooner or later, they will do things that pose threats to us. And the problem is that when we then have to deal with those threats, our options are fewer and the cost is higher. I was going to get to this later, but since we're here, uh, this does seem, it feels as if it speaks almost directly to the decision that President Trump just made to withdraw a small number of troops who are really, in a sense, uh, a a brick in the wall that was uh, preventing genocide on the part of the, the Turks against the Kurds that were holding back the Russians, the, the, the Syrians, uh, preventing a bridge for Iran to ship uh, missiles to uh, Lebanon Lebanon. and to Hamas. Um, Right. It's a, you know, you think about, okay, you want to prevent vacuums. You don't want to be the only one to do it. You need local partners to do that. The local partners have to be credible. We actually find a partner's credible because they'll fight for themselves, and all they require from us is material support, uh, some logistics support, some air cover at times. But they do the fighting. They defeated ISIS by doing the one thing you had to do. You couldn't defeat them from the air. You had to, be able, you had to root them out on the ground. They did it. They took over 11,000 dead. The Kurds, yeah. Yes. And we, we lost six. It's terrible to lose six. But you look at what the alternatives were. This was actually a model for the future. You know, if you don't want to be the world's policeman— and we can't and shouldn't be. You don't want to. F- you don't want these vacuums to form. Well, you need allies on the one hand, and you need local partners on the other. If you berate your allies, you're not going to have them. And if you betray your local partners, you're not going to have them. This is a prescription for us having a world that is dramatically less stable. That, as I said, sooner or later pulls us back in in situations that are dramatically worse. You know. To be fair, I think. You know, look, there's a, there's a wariness, there's a wariness for understandable reasons, especially when it comes to the Middle East. In the greater Middle East, counting Afghanistan, we've been on the ground losing people since 2001. I get it. But 
the fact is, you know, the Las Vegas rules don't apply there. So sooner or later, what takes place there is going to visit us anyway. Or sooner or later, as you see, what, what Syria yeah, So you does. know what the president says. Look, and, and I think, I, honestly, as someone who observes politics, I think yeah. it probably resonates with a lot of Americans, which is, why should we worry about what happened 7,000 miles from here? That's their problem. Uh, you know, ancient tribal rivalries and so on. Right. Let them fight it out. Right. Why should we expend our dollars and our lives over there? Th- that actually has some real resonance with a lot of people in this country, particularly after now uh, uh, 18, 18 years, years. Uh, of, of war in that, in that region. Look, I, I understand the appeal. And part of the problem and this is Democrats have a responsibility to explain policy in a way that is understandable and repeatable. Uh, the first answer to that is, why care about it? Because 9-11 didn't just emerge out of the ether. You know, the, the ideology that you end up having to fight over there is an ideology that doesn't accept our existence. Our existence is a threat to them, therefore they have to carry the fight to us. So if you don't want to be having that fought here, then you have to find a way to both discredit that ideology we can't discredit it. You need other Muslims to discredit it. You also have to have local actors who are prepared to take them on. Because, uh, again, when we put large numbers of boots on the ground, we become an occupier. When we become an occupier, that feeds the very, very ideology we have to fight. So here again, there's a reason for us to be there, because if we're not there, sooner or later we're going to find it visits us. We saw what happened in Syria, where you had a million refugees transform Europe— uh, helped to give rise to uh, popular xenophobic yeah. right-wing forces. That affects us. A world where values don't matter is a world where we're going to be confronting those who will, will, as I said, they will threaten us more directly. So it's not hard to explain that it's in our interest to prevent vacuums from forming internationally. We can't do it on our own. We need partners to do it. They have to share the burden. There's no question. It can't be only us. But if we're not to play, if we're not prepared to play any role, then we won't have the partners. And if we're prepared, if we we do what President Trump did, which is betray those who actually did the fighting and dieting against ISIS, then when are you going to have others who are going to say, "Gee, I'm prepared to sign up with the U.S. I can count on them." You mm-hmm. know, there's a saying going around right now. A friend of an Arab friend of mine told me in the Middle East right now, if the U.S. says it has you covered, it means you're naked. Hmm. That's kind of a chilling. It is, but but under but understandable. Um, you uh, you you joined the campaign of of President George H. W. Bush yeah. in 1988 as a fo- foreign policy advisor, and you worked uh, in that administration. That fo- foreign policy team, uh, Secretary Baker, right. um, and uh, Scowcroft, and yeah, yeah. They, they were they're sort of they were the kind of poster children for kind of realism in foreign policy True. and so on, uh, highly regarded. What was that experience like? And you were there during that period of transition when the Soviet Union collapsed, right. which must have been of great interest to you given your yeah. studies. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, that, you know, I don't need to tell you, every administration has a kind of sociology. In, in George H.W. Bush's case, he hated the infighting in the Reagan administration. Uh, and he made it very clear that when he was bringing people in, he wanted debates, but when the decision was made, it stopped. Leaking wasn't going to be tolerated. And if people, you know, I recall Baker saying to us, you know, his small inner core, because that's the way he worked, he said, look, you do leaking, you engage in kind of backbiting against the other parts of the administration, you're gone doesn't matter how valuable I think you are, you're gone. And we developed, it's not only that, that the way he worked with, with Scowcroft and Cheney, who was then the Secretary of Defense. Scowcroft was, was his national, national security, security advisor. advisor. They, they worked very closely together. They could have disagreements, but the president, President Bush was not someone who was reluctant to decide, and he would decide. But below their level, we had kind of our own circle. We would, we would thrash things out. Uh, almost everybody who was at the second tier had had a relationship uh, with each other. Uh, I recall with uh, Bob Blackwell and Condi Rice in the, uh, on the NSC, 
uh, Bob Zellick, who was a counselor at the time, mm-hmm. and I was the head of policy planning, we would go over and, and we'd write the talking points for meetings with Gorbachev. I mean, it was that kind of a, a coherence, uh, and but not just a coherence, an ability to work together. Didn't mean you didn't have differences and debates. We did. Uh, Cheney was frequently, took a much harder line on arms control issues, and yet Steve Hadley, who was his assistant secretary. Yeah, he was would, defense secretary, then we right, should point out. Right. You know. He would travel with Baker. Uh, he was part of the team. I mean, there there was a, a truly there was a team concept that that drove uh, how decisions were were made uh, and then how they were implemented. Baker was uh, was clearly first among equals. He had a he had a unique relationship with with they Bush. Were very close, close, close friends. friends. When Baker's first wife had died, it was the Bushes who really really took care of him. He's yeah. a guy who has four kids at the time. Yeah. So he was they were they almost had a relationship like brothers, uh, and. Uh, so Baker had a kind of first among equal status, uh, but it also, but he never abused it either. Uh, and uh, we understood that we had the kind of leading responsibility for conceptualizing and implementing, but we still had to get approval from the White House before we did it. And he was very careful to operate that way. He was defeated by Bill Clinton. Yeah, you went on to work in the Clinton administration. I did. How did how did that transition happen? Well, it's not one that I expected. Uh, you know, because. It's true, I was sort of seen as a foreign policy professional. I mean, and that, that was an era when you could be a political appointee for a Republican and a Democrat, which seems like ancient history now. Yeah. Uh, I think what happened was uh, I had been, it wasn't just the Soviet work that I'd done, and now Russia was replacing it, but it was also, I was seen as a key player working with, with Baker to put together the Madrid conference. And so on the Middle East, right? Uh, and this 1991. The, uh, yes, and it, it broke the taboo on direct talks between Arabs and Israelis. That was its its significance. So I was uh, I was asked about ten days before the the end of the transition period if I would stay for three to six months and be a special advisor to to Warren Christopher, the uh, incoming secretary, right? Of State. And and they said, look, we would like you to help with Middle East stuff, but because you played a role before and everything, we'd like you to, you know, to uh, to advise across the board with everything. You'll travel with him when he goes to the Middle East, but we'd like you to, on the Russia stuff, we want you to help out. And anything that you feel you want to send a memo on, you do it. Sounds like a good gig. It was a very good gig, except for one thing. With Under, under Baker, I had the responsibility to conceptualize and then to implement. And here, I had an office right down the hall. I actually kept the office that I had, uh, but I was kind of a, a solitary actor. So I could write these memos, I could go to him, and he was, I have to say, he was extraordinary with me. I mean, he gave me terrific access. But every time I'd walk into a room, you know, the first couple months of the administration, it would be like, oh, you know, the fifth column's here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because I had, uh, when Baker had gone to the White House in August of 92, I was one of four people he, he took with him. I mean, at the time... I said to him, well, I understand that you have to go, but why do I have to go? Yeah, he went back to yes, become to be chief, chief of staff, staff again and sort of well, oversee the, that. The campaign. The campaign, yeah. Uh, and so uh, so he goes, if I go, you have to go. Uh, and He didn't want to go, did he? Oh, he, oh, you know, he said to me at one point, you know, now I have to determine do we have balloons or, you know, confetti coming from the skies at rallies before I was dealing with, you know, I'm dealing <laughs> with the biggest issues there are on the world stage. I mean, it was... You know, I did a, a, a an Axe Files TV show with Secretary Baker, and what was very clear was, even though he is sort of a legendary figure in American politics, right. I mean, he was a brilliant oh. political strategist and tactician, uh, he really... He, he really didn't want to talk about that as much as he thought of himself as a statesman. And so there he got dragged back in a way that I think was deeply— It was, it was hard un- on him. Hard for him, It yes. was very hard on him at the time. I remember it was—you know, he was doing this for his friend, but it's—I think part of it was he deserved to have an identity as a great statesman. The truth is he was— other than Kissinger, he and Kissinger are probably the two most extraordinary secretaries of state in the post-World War II, end of the 20th century uh, era. And for him, he knew the label of being kind of this political guru 
was what he'd been, it was one he'd always carried. And he, he wanted to be seen for what he legitimately felt that he was. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. I don't think it worked out very well because I think uh, if you're ambivalent about what you're doing, you don't do it as well. Right. And I, I, I don't think he, the Jim Baker of 1992 was not the Jim Baker of 1988 or the guy who, who uh, you know, engineered his uh, uh, selection as vice president and who became chief of staff. He, he was a different... He was, and you I'll know. tell you, you know, you, you, may, you may or may not recall this, but he was hunkered down in his office in the White House, and it became a story. Yeah. And so very late in the campaign, then he went out, you know, to be on the hustings with, uh, uh, with President Bush. And, and I recall there's this kind of iconic photograph of him sitting alone looking forlorn. Uh, that somebody took out on the on the campaign, and it was really, I think, representative of what he felt. You know, there um, it's always been reputed. I don't know if it's true or not that that George W. Bush was was a little peeved at him because he didn't feel like he was fully invested uh, in the campaign, um, and that was actually a source of some tension uh, between them. Let me ask you one question before I leave Baker, and I should have asked you this before, before we moved on to, to the Clinton administration. There was, and perhaps it was as a result of Madrid, but there was a sense among some elements of the American Jewish community that the Bush administration, the first Bush administration was insufficiently supportive of Israel, perhaps a little bit too willing to accept and embrace, uh, the Palestinians. Um, yeah. Is that a, is that a correct perception? It is. It's a. I mean, is a, is was that the perception of the community? Um, not it, yeah. Not, a yeah. You're asking two things. One yes. is, uh, was there that perception? The answer is yes. And was that perception correct? And the answer to the former is absolutely it existed. The answer to the second, it is in my mind, it's quite. I, I actually did this in my last book. There's a lot of similarity between the perception of George H. W. Bush and Barack Obama as it relates to Israel. Both were prepared to be critical of Israel in public. The interesting reality is each, in terms of their approach to Israeli security, were profoundly good. But that public dissidence is what sort of created the impression. And in, in a lot of ways, it, it, it really blinded people to, okay, but look at the things, the practical things that they're actually doing. You know, in, in Bush's case, you know, Bush is the one who defeats... Iraq, which takes away the most serious regional threat the Israelis face. Bush is the one who produces uh, recognition of Israel from 44 countries that hadn't done it before. Uh, Bush is the one who presides over getting the Zionism as racism resolution at the UN uh, you know, revoked. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, uh, he agrees with, with uh, Shamir on the issue of Having Soviet, yes, sorry, having Soviet Jews actually have to go to Israel from Vienna before they would go anyplace else, which was huge in terms of having the majority of Soviet Jewry who were leaving at that time end up in Israel. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the fact that the, for the first time ever, we deploy 700 American forces to deploy the Patriots at the beginning uh, of the Gulf War. Now, there's a reason. We don't want the Israelis. We want to provide defense for them. We don't want them... Uh, reacting against the Iraqi right. scuds, but Israel had never before accepted American forces on the ground, and they had to because they didn't have Patriot mm -hmm. missiles. They had to be there to operate it, uh, and this was not something that suggested a kind of hesitancy to be yeah. associated with Israel. But in both cases, and and you're right that the Obama administration, in terms of military aid, was you know uh, pr uh, produced record amounts of. Uh, military assistance, mil military to military cooperation, and so on. In both cases, the administrations, though, pushed the Israeli administrations right. to try and and forge some sort of lasting uh, peace with uh, the Palestinians or get right. on that course, and that was a source of friction. Right. Um, In a sense, look, what was true of both administrations was while they were good on security, they weren't always good in terms of framing what they were doing and why they were doing it in a way that reached out to the Jewish community that, that in a sense, this gets back to in Baker's case, Baker gave a very tough speech to APEC early in the administration, a very tough speech. You know, I helped to preside over the drafting process of it, and 
all of what I called the important grace notes he took out. And I explained to him, look, you can't be asking Israelis to do something that's seen as, as hard for them unless you're also showing you get Israel's predicament. You understand what they face in the region. Uh, and so you have to show the kind of connection, even the, even the emotional connection mm-hmm. there, so that they understand, look, this isn't a case of just trying to satisfy the Arabs at Israel's expense. And in a sense, both, I think both ended up creating that impression, even if yeah. it didn't fit the I'll actual reality I'll tell you one thing I policy. wonder about, on the, and, and you were there for probably these discussions, but when uh, President Obama went to Cairo to make his speech, a decision was made that he'd go to Cairo, but he wasn't going to stop. In, in Israel. In Israel. And, um, uh, you know, I often wonder how, whether that would have changed anything. It would have. You know, it would have. I look at the during the transition. Tom Donlin asked me to write a, a paper on all right. Where should the president give his speech to the Muslim world? Uh, and I actually made the case in here: do it Cairo, not don't go to Jakarta. Our problem is not with the Muslims in in mm-hmm. Asia. Our yeah. problem is in the Middle East. But I said if you do that, you have to go to Israel because otherwise the Israeli public is going to fear this is coming at their expense, uh, and. Unfortunately, that side of the argument, in my mind, uh, lost out. And I think it lost out because there was a perception, look, you're different, you don't have to do what everybody else has done. But it didn't take account of the fact that you're reaching out to to Muslims. You need to show, before you have a relationship with Israelis, you need to show, you know, you get their concerns. Yeah, you get the particularly because part of the speech in Cairo uh, dealt with the expansion of settlements. Right. And... Um, so yeah, no, I I think about that uh, yeah. often. Um, the you you were involved in in some of the most significant advances yeah. in the peace process. Um, uh, the uh, the Oslo right. uh, Accords in 1994, uh, 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 being uh, principally uh, among them. Talk about that. You you became actually uh, fairly. Uh, close to Yasser Arafat, the, yeah. the head of the PLO. You, there's a great story about you being with your mother and putting <laughs> Arafat on the yeah. the phone with her, which most that's that's not yeah a good Jewish mother. Yeah. yeah, but actually, what part of that was was this was we we're trying to close on the what was the interim agreement, which was the the most important of all the Oslo agreements was that one because it creates the Palestinian Authority in all the cities of the West Bank except Hebron, but it establishes a principle of that, which I end up later on negotiating. Yeah, in 97, you did an right. additional agreement about right. Hebron. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, I was trying to get him to to close on the interim agreement. I was worried that if we didn't get it done before the Jewish holidays, we might not get it done. So I'm on the phone with him, and uh, and at a certain point, I, let's, I think it's fair to say I was raising my voice, uh, and when I hang up my, uh, and su- subsequently I had my mother get on the phone with him. But uh, at this point, she said, who are you talking to? I said, Arafat. And she goes, you talk to him that way? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you, you had many conversations like that with him and other Palestinian right. uh, leaders. Right. Abba Ibn famously said that Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But... There were a lot of frustrations. Sure, um, they did move forward did. in in the nineties. By the end of the decade, when you were trying to take final steps, right. uh, he he would not. Yeah, I think the one of the things about Arafat is that Arafat never foreclosed an option, and the problem that that we had was that we were trying to end the conflict. So the three words that he couldn't accept were "end the conflict," because "end the conflict" meant and the grievance, and the claims, and the struggle, and the struggle to find him. Mm-hmm. I tell a story which kind of captures this. At the end of the uh, of doing the Hebron deal, was, there were two different 23-day shuttles, uh, literally around the clock. So when we finished it, the day after we finished, I went down to see him, and we were alone, just the two of us eating together. Uh, and I said, look, I'm, I'm leaving, and I'm going to go take a vacation. And first he said, can't you stay? And I said, no, I'm, I'm actually leaving. Uh, and and I said, I'm going to take a vacation. He goes, gee, it must be nice to have a vacation. So I said, <laughs> you know, you could use one. And he says, 
Now, I haven't had one since 1962 for an afternoon. I said, well, you could really use one. Uh, and then he says to me, and, and get the picture. It's just the two of us. There's no one to impress. I've been living with him, literally. Yeah. And then he says to me, how can I take a vacation from my people? Now, there's no one else there, you know. This the struggle was who he was. It, it was basically his identity. And when we said end the conflict, it meant he had to end his identity. He could do limited deals because that didn't threaten that. That was the problem. And one of the things I say that you know, I, I feel that I should have understood before we went to Camp David better. At the end of the decade. Right. That, the final days of the Clinton administration. Well, yeah, we have in, in August, in July of, of 2000, we go to Camp David. And we come with, on December 22nd with the Clinton parameters, which I, I helped to shape, which were actually more forward-leaning towards the Palestinians than what was offered at Camp David. But I felt that, you know, it, it occurred to me only when we were at Camp David that we shouldn't have gone unless we had a commitment from each side that we could have orchestrated, where each side would have come out, meaning Barack and Arafat would have come out and publicly acknowledged. Ehud Barak, the prime minister right, of Israel. We will not get 100% of what we want on Jerusalem, refugees, security, and borders. They had to legitimize the idea of compromise mm -hmm. publicly. Now, Barack would have grudgingly done it, and my guess is Arafat would not have. And had we known that, we would have then said, okay, look, we're not going to go for uh, an end of conflict agreement. We're going to go to expand the space of Palestinian independence and autonomy. We're going to build the institutions on the Palestinian side. We'll do more on people to people. We'll do what it takes. So to you overreached because you didn't, right. because you, you didn't contemplate what his ability to move was or willingness to move was. We didn't uh, test it in a way that we should I should have. stop right here because we can get very deep into this. Explain what – you're a big proponent of a two-state solution, yeah. separation of, right. of Israel and the Palestinians, right. Palestinians uh, with their own state. Um, and you, you've just co-authored a book called Be Strong and of Good Courage right. that – is a profile of four leaders who made difficult choices that were important in the history of Israel, but but at the core of it was your uh, right. your continued advocacy for this uh, solution, which has been the kind of core of American foreign policy for uh, several decades. Why is this so important? Two different reasons, I would say. One that relates to Israel, but not in a in a way we we do in the book. One is that if you look in the Middle East, every place where you have a state that has more than one identity, national, sectarian, or tribal, that state's at war with itself. I mean, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. If you want to take uh, two national movements competing for the same space, which is the Jewish national movement, the Palestinian national movement, are competing for the same space. These are two separate national identities. Put them together in one state, and you will have one will feel the need to dominate the other. You know, I, interestingly enough, a, I once had a member of Fatah come to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and make that case publicly. Uh, this was during, uh, in the early 2000s. It's Arafat's movement. Yes. And, and the point is, you know, if you, want a, if you want a prescription for an endless conflict, then try to force two national identities into this one state. Mm -hmm. It's a mistake from that standpoint. From the standpoint of the Jewish national movement, from the standpoint of Zionism, it's the end of the Zionist mission and ethic because the, what that was about was, a, was Jewish democracy. Mm -hmm. And you look at someone like Ben-Gurion, actually all four of these leaders in different ways, but Ben-Gurion in particular, you look uh, the, at the— The founding father, as it were, of Right, Israel. exactly. You know, the, 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 the statement of independence when Israel declares itself— an, el an elemental part of this is Israel needs to be not just a refuge for the Jews. Oh, there is a need for that. Yes, after the Holocaust in particular, that was clear. But it needs to be a light unto the nations. And so if you lose Israel as a Jewish democracy because you have one state for two people, then that's the end of the Zionist dream, the Zionist mission. Uh, you lose your values, you lose your character, you lose your identity. And the problem is the premise of this book, and then the concluding chapter goes yes. and explains it in detail, is that you will have, by default, that as an outcome if Israel keeps building outside the settlement blocks. Now, the blocks of those areas, 87% of all the Israelis who moved into the West Bank 
live in the area that's about 5% of the territory closest to the major Israeli urban centers. They move there not for ideological reasons, but for quality of life reasons. So the, we came up with the concept of settlement blocks actually before we went to Camp David in the year 2000. And the idea was, all right, we're going to absorb the vast majority of Israeli settlers. Uh, and then we'll, in these, these areas will become part of Israel, and there'll be a territorial swap to compensate the Palestinians. So if you build in the blocks, that's consistent with the two-state outcome. Right. If, if you, you build, build outside, you destroy the ability to right. make that kind of deal. And these, you make tactical decisions now to add to the settlers outside the blocks. These will have long-term strategic consequences. But it's a hard political decision because the settler movement in Israel has real political weight. So this book, we did this book to, sh- to show, let's look at four leaders who made big decisions who weren't so afraid to make So I want them. to tell you a story of my own. Yeah. Uh, in 1994, I think I went on a... Uh, a trip that was sponsored by APAC of Democratic leaders here in the U.S. to uh, going to Israel, and uh, we met with uh, three leaders. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu was just had taken over; he was the new leader of the Likud. Uh, Shimon Peres, who was the I guess the foreign minister right. then, right. and with uh, Rabin, who was uh, the prime minister, and. Uh, the, uh, one person in the group asked the same question to each, which is, if Oslo moves forward, uh, what will you say to the settlers who will have to move and uh, out of what would then be Palestinian uh, territory? And um, Netanyahu said, well, I wouldn't tell, have to tell them anything because they wouldn't have to move if I were the prime minister. Um, uh, Perez said... Uh, well, they, I would tell them they're free to live under Palestinian rule, which I thought was, I think he, I don't think he meant it to sound glib, but it sounded like a, a yeah. glib, not real world yeah. answer. And Rabin, who clearly was irritated that he had to waste time meeting with us <laughs> uh, and didn't hide it, kind of rubbed his temple and he said, uh, I would tell them that we've shed too much blood and that peace has a price. And this is the price, and this is the price we're going to have to pay. And it was instantly uh, obvious why he was the leader. Yep. Uh, yep. And um, that I mentioned earlier what an assassin's bullet can yep. do. You wonder if not for that young man who who, who Ye- killed Rabin, Yigalamir. what the what the history of this process would have been. Maybe. Palestinians never would have gotten there. But the point of your book is that you had a series of leaders, um, uh, Ben-Gurion, Begin, uh, uh, Rabin, and Ariel Sharon, who were all part of the sort of origins of the country and who had, had seen a lot of bloodshed and who were willing to pay those Price of Sharon, the most interesting in some ways because right. of the evolution he made from uh, you know right wing politics uh, and a proponent of the settlements. Right. Um, so that's, let's fast forward to today. Yeah. We have Netanyahu, um, you know, touted as the king of it, the king of Israel because yeah. he's been there so long and he's such a dominant political force. Right. In a second, I want to talk about where they are right now, but. Um, Sharon said, in, and you report, that he said the problem is that everybody who comes after us will be politicians right. and they will make political judgments. Right. That seemed prophetic. Yeah. Uh, because Netanyahu, in my experience when I was in the White House and you were much closer to it, uh, was making constant uh, political calculations, um, whereas these men made judgments that were in certain ways counter to their political uh, exactly so so where does that leave where does that leave us well because um, people are losing faith Dennis that a two-state solution is even you look at Israeli polls you look at uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that that this is even a conceivable thing and for some good reason that there's a great yeah, yeah. fear well, about it look the you use the right word faith. There is a loss of faith on both sides, uh, and and faith is not something that you simply restore. You have to work at reestablishing a sense of possibility. But the but what you're putting your finger on is, on the Israeli side, 
first they look at a region and look what do they see, a half a million dead in Syria, Iran embedding itself, trying to have a land corridor, trying to put precision-guided capabilities on a on a hundred over a hundred thousand rockets that Hezbollah has, ISIS in the in the Sinai, uh, Hamas, you know, with rockets out of Gaza, uh, and 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 ironically, in no small part, perhaps because of Bibi, that you have Iran now walking away incrementally from the JCPOA, which means that Israel is also going to have the, to plan the nuclear that. agreement, right? So. It's easy to sort of focus on all of that and at the same time look at the Palestinians who seem dysfunctional. They're divided between Hamas and Fatah in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, they, they tend to focus on symbols, not on substance and so forth. So it's easy to sort of say, look, there's nothing to be done or what's wrong with maintaining where we are? And the answer is, well, what's wrong with it is because you're going to lose who you are if you do it. That's why you have to separate. Now, when Israelis are asked the question, do you support separation from the Palestinians? 70% will say yes. Now, they haven't, that hasn't been the issue that's been voted on, but I do think if, if Gantz comes in— Benny Gantz, who's—we're we're now in the second election yeah. that has not produced uh, a, a okay. governing coalition. We could—I I, I know you, you think that, that this will resolve itself without a third election. I do think that. Um, but um, but it's tenuous right now. As it to is. How it's gonna... Well, I mean, no one, look. You've got a prime minister, Netanyahu, who's, who's currently facing indictment. Right. Um, and you have a proposal from the president, Rivlin, of Israel, that there should be a rotational arrangement where Netanyahu would be the first prime minister, Gantz would be the second prime minister, but Netanyahu would be incapacitated if he was indicted. If you look at the timetable right now, Gantz's mandate runs out near the end of November. The attorney general is going to— That is the amount of time he has given uh, to put together a coalition right. before he has to give the mandate back. That's right. And he's the leader of the, the sort of center— The blue-white party. The blue-white blue coalition. White. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Bibi is likely to be indicted by the attorney general the first week of December. So let's say they did a deal— he's likely to be prime minister for seven to 10 days. That's why I think that's the scenario that's most likely gonna take place. He retains the title, but he doesn't have the function any longer. But he wants the title because the only minister in the government who doesn't have to resign if indicted is the prime minister. Yeah. So he won't have to resign. Uh, and so I think my bet is, although you know, I wouldn't bet a huge amount of money on it, because you know, look, the fact is, Maybe Bibi wants a third election because it means that the status quo, he remains the prime minister in a caretaker government until that election takes place. I don't think his party wants a third election because they realize they'll be blamed if there's a third election. The public does not want it. Right. Which is why, in the end, I think you're going to end up with a national Do you think if Gantz were the prime minister, he's, he's obviously a former yeah. military man, would, would, do you see some prospect, a, a greater prospect of— he has stayed away from this discussion. That's true of a two-state solution. But That's do you true. think that it would the the prospects are better if Netanyahu is removed from the discussion? Yes, for several reasons. Um, one is it also gives the Palestinians an excuse to be more open to having talks. Not that I think talks are going to lead anywhere quickly, but it, that. Just like when you have vacuums that we talked about earlier get filled by the worst forces. Well, when there's no political, there's no process of trying to promote peace, well, that's a vacuum too. Mm -hmm. And it feeds the disbelief and it feeds the, the weight of the, of the rejectionists. So I think there'll be, they would, it create a potential to have some resumption of a diplomatic process, number one. Number two, there'd be no annexation. That's really the death knell. Because Bibi Netanyahu has promised to move forward on annexation right. uh, into those areas that you right. suggest would be uh, deal breakers uh, right. for any future. Uh, That's right. Uh, two state solution. That's right. And yeah. so, because he says all the settlements will stay. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, again, in in the blocks, that's one thing. Outside the blocks, it's something else. Mm -hmm. But Gantz will not go along with annexations. Mm -hmm. uh, and Gantz and the people around him are are sensitive to this argument of 
not becoming one state for two people. Mm -hmm. He hasn't put a lot of attention on it, but from time to time, he sort of signaled that. Mm -hmm. uh, in any case, if there's no annexation— Interesting. A lot of the military guys, their military absolutely. folks are the, are the most avid absolutely. supporters of that. They're also the most avid supporters for stabilizing the economic situation in Gaza, mm -hmm. which is— Catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do have this. You also have an issue with American Jews, who are uncomfortable with the image of Israel as a as an occupying right. uh, force, and with the state of affairs in Gaza, uh, right. and among the Palestinians, uh, the deprivation that they're uh, right. that they're suffering. Let me ask you a question about the White House. Yeah, um, you know, the president has assigned his son-in-law, Jared. Kushner to work on this issue. He's been working on a plan for several years. I presume they've consulted with you as they, one of they the have experts. Reached out to me, yeah. and you. So you have some idea what they're up to. Yeah. What 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 is the role that that this White House is is playing and could play that that is constructive? And what are the what has the impact been of their very strong alliance with Netanyahu? The moving of the yeah. recognition of the capital to Jerusalem, which was quite controversial. Right. You know, on the one hand, they have wanted to—I think they're serious about trying to put together a plan that uh, that at least they regard as having some chance of, of changing the reality in the region. Um, they haven't shown it to anybody. I don't know the details. You know, I can glean certain things from the kind of questions that they ask me. My concern is the content will probably fall short of what it would need to be to— even to to put Arab leaders in a position where they could say it was serious, for it to be for to get Arab leaders to say it's serious, they were never going to say the Palestinians should ac should accept it because they won't they won't put themselves in a position where the Palestinians could say you're betraying the national mm -hmm. cause, but they could put themselves in a position where they can say it's up to the Palestinians to decide. But this is a serious basis for talks. For that, you have to have a Palestinian state in it, and you have to have a capital for that state in some significant part of Arab East Jerusalem. And you don't think the plan will include either of those things? I think they may they may have a state there, but it it may be hard to sell as a state given what they're gonna what the territory is likely to be. Mm -hmm. I think they may surprise people in terms of of what they would provide in Jerusalem, but I also think it may it's probably still likely to fall short. But even if it even if it was if the content surprises and exceeds, if you haven't prepared the ground by having Arab leaders see it. If you haven't given them a chance to make a few changes in it, just so there's even a small degree of ownership, if you haven't worked with them word for word on what they'll say in response to it, uh, you know you you haven't laid the basis for it uh, to give yourself more of a chance of success. And you, what you were talking about, a lot of the symbolism uh, has been geared exclusively to Israeli symbols and zero to Palestinians. They won't commit to a state, which, it, which would at least give the Palestinian public a sense, all right, there's a political horizon at least. They cut off all, Palestinian, all assistance to the Palestinians, including even assistance to joint projects, projects that were Israeli-Palestinian cooperative projects, which should be a model. You want that to be a sign of this is what succeeds. Mm -hmm. They cut off all the money for that. When they cut off UNRWA, I didn't have a problem with cutting off UNRWA, although I did, you can't just— you can't just do cold turkey. You can't say, that's it, it's all gone. When they provide a lot of the, they pay all the teachers in Gaza. They provide food programs in Gaza. They provide some, aside from the teachers, some work basis in Gaza. I mean, I would have thought if you didn't like uh, UNRWA, uh, and you can make a case that it perpetuates the refugee problem. Explain what UNRWA is. Right, so, so going back to, to um, the original 1948 war, you ended up having about 750,000 Palestinians who were who left, and you, mm -hmm. there's a part of the historical debate is over: were they forced out? Did they simply go, or did they do what most people do in a war, which is get out of the way mm -hmm. of a war? Uh, in any case, they weren't allowed to come back, uh, and so they went into camps. And you had the the UN system then created a refugee relief agency to mm -hmm. deal with them. So that's what UNRWA became. Mm -hmm. Now, in many ways, it has perpetuated the refugee problem. You, instead of thinking about how you could take those camps and sort of rebuild them, move people out of the camps, that wasn't done. Mm -hmm. uh, but since UNRWA— Right, but so just to just 
cold turkey cut yeah. this aid only exacerbates the absolutely you know. and why not at the same time if you're going to cut under to zero why not give the 364 million dollars why not say okay this we're going to we're going to pay the teachers the Palestinian teachers in Gaza we're going to pay for the food programs there uh, we're going to do some investments in terms of like solar energy there because they have mm-hmm. real problem generating uh, electricity and with solar panels especially in an mm-hmm. area that has right. sun most of the time right. You could have you could have provided electricity. You could power sewage treatment plants and the like. They didn't do any of that. So well, that's why I say about not preparing the ground. Let me ask you about a general point, which is yeah. people raise their eyebrows when the president assigned his son-in-law yeah. to this task. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jeremy Greenblatt, who was a, a a real estate lawyer, I guess, is that Jason Jason Greenblatt? Jason Greenblatt, Greenblatt yeah. yes. Um, but um, generally. You're a career diplomat. You've worked for two Republican presidents. You've worked for two Democratic uh, presidents. Um, What is your assessment of what's happening right now? You've seen this parade of people coming forward on the Ukrainian issue, on the impeachment investigation, many of whom are career diplomats, some of whom you probably know. I do, yeah. Stepping forward at the cost of their careers, potentially. What is the impact in terms of the diplomatic core and the U.S.'s commitment to diplomacy of of all of this sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of extracurricular diplomatic activity yeah. that we've seen and a kind of an abandonment of diplomacy? You know, it's, it's not new for presidents and secretary of state to bring in uh, – non-career people. Well, I was a non-career person. I was a political appointee. What you saw historically, though, is when, when you had people who were brought in from the outside, they were people who had expertise expertise and history on the subject. Uh, it's different to bring in people who don't have any of that. I would say, by the way, Jason Greenblatt didn't have a, didn't have a background, but he, he threw himself into mm-hmm. studying it. Uh, and, he, and he did it with a kind of, of sincerity and genuineness. So there, you it has a kind of you know someone who's making that effort that has a kind of credibility. But what you, about the throwing over of ambassadors, the the, yeah. the general shredding of the? Look, they represent the infrastructure of American diplomacy. They represent memory. They represent continuity. Uh, you know, I always used to get dealing with others internationally. These are people who've been in their position for 30, 40 years. Uh, and with the U.S., you know, you, you have an administration every four and eight years. Well, the glue is basically the Foreign Service, the Civil Service, the people who serve irrespective of administration. And they don't tailor their approach to, to the politics of the moment. They're, in many ways, almost uniquely apolitical. And it's not just the military that way. I used to see it in the Foreign Service as well. Uh, and, in fact, sometimes I would even say they went overboard in that regard because I would say, look, secretaries of state are also political people. Mm-hmm. Understand that. But here, you, when you are getting rid of the infrastructure that allows you to shape policies, not to mention just shape, but implement them, you're weakening yourself. I mean, who, who pays the price for that? We do because you'll end up having dysfunctional policies You'll end up having policies that blow up in your face, you know. So, what are the combined impacts of the 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 shredding of alliances, which is yeah. something that you spoke to earlier, yeah. and this sort of hollowing out of the uh, of your uh, diplomatic core? Yeah, yeah. No, I I think if you undo alliances, you know, you're not going to have them when you need them. Uh, if you if you basically gut the diplomatic core, who are you going to call on to do these things? I mean, the fact is, you know, it's nice to be able to have people who are, and it should be, every administration brings in those who represent in some ways a political orientation of the administration, but they marry them with the ongoing structure, whether it's in the Pentagon or it's in the State Department or it's in the intelligence community. All of these, you know, I will tell you over the years, I mean, having worked in five different administrations, having been a political appointing for four, two Republican and two Democrat, one of the things I was always struck by 
was the the capacity of the intelligence community or the foreign service to basically you know do their job uh, and they if they thought if they had problems with what was being suggested what I always found was a readiness to raise the problems. If they got overruled, they got overruled. So be it. But then they and then they would go ahead and they would do what they were told. But you had a sense that these were people who had a kind of selfless commitment and even a kind of nobility to what their role was, what their purpose was, and why they were why they were there. I mean, I always I used well, to, we're seeing we're sort of seeing that with this parade of people who have stepped forward on this on this absolutely. issue. Well, let, 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 let me just ask yeah. you, though, because we're, yeah. we're running out, out of time. As someone who's dealt yeah. in diplomacy and who has, you know, presumably colored within the lines uh, yeah. throughout your career. Uh, just how wrong it was. I mean, just at a, at a fundamental level, how wrong it was. You're withholding military assistance to those who are resisting direct Russian and indirect Russian efforts at destabilization and aggressions within Ukraine and trying to dictate to Ukraine what its future is going to be. And you are withholding it so that uh, there'll be a political, there'll be an investigation that is designed to harm your political opponents. Never seen it before. Never seen anything like it before. Which is not to say presidents and secretary of state don't think about the political well-being of administrations. Of course they do. But I don't care. In every administration I was a part of, and they were you know, Republican, Democrat, where the orientation on policy might be quite different, but there were boundaries within which the policy was pursued. Uh, and, you know, I can just, just I, I, I think about today, what would John McCain be saying if he were around? Mm -hmm. I think we know what he would be saying. This is simply something that crosses the line and is unacceptable. That's just not what you do. It's a perversion of our own political process, and basically it's a perversion of how you conduct foreign policy. And so presumably you think this impeachment inquiry is, is necessary? It's certainly legitimate. Mm -hmm. How can you not? I mean, at a minimum, it's legitimate. Well, it is. there's many pages to be turned on this. <laughs> particular uh, uh, drama for the country. But speaking of page turners, Be Strong and of Good Courage uh, by Dennis Ross and his co-author David uh, Makovsky. You know, for anyone who's interested in both the history uh, of, uh, of modern Israel and uh, the dilemma that it faces today, uh, this is really a great read. So Thank Highly you. recommend it. Thank, Thank you, you for being at the Institute of Politics. My pleasure. Happy to come anytime. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop. Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.